Okay, I would invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 6. We're going to start a brand new chapter, or not a brand new chapter, yes, that also, but a brand new section in the letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 6, I'm only going to be reading the, verse, uh, the first two verses this morning, uh, because also for multiple reasons, I'm, I mean one, just because we're starting a whole new section, so we're going to have a little introduction there, and, uh, and then we'll um, get into a little bit more in the coming weeks. But this morning, uh, Romans 6, chapter, or verses 1 to 2, God's inspired and inerrant and sufficient word reads, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Far from it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Father, we ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And, and just a few words strung together in a couple sentences, Father, have such deep and uh, profound meaning. And so, Lord, I pray that as we spend the next 30 minutes or so, um, as I try to add some my own thoughts and meaning to these words, Father, we do ask that your spirit would illuminate this text, that your spirit would indu- in, indeed open our hearts and our minds, that we would be receptive uh, to what you would uh, have us to hear. Father, help me, help us to be faithful, help us to always verify everything with Scripture, And so this morning, we just uh, give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I've simply titled this this morning, A Choice of Life and Death. Might have been better titled, A Matter of Life and Death, but but nonetheless, A Choice of Life and Death. I I once in a while, I try to be uh, a... um, I try to be well-read and widely read among different genres, and uh, you kind of get stuck in your own rut, right? And, And mine can get into a nerdy world that just hurts my brain, and so once in a while I like to pick up other books, and so I've been reading some classics or trying to work my way through a few of the classics, and, and currently I'm reading one right now by John Steinbeck, and he's well known for like Mice and Men and Grapes of Wrath and those types, but I've been reading East of Eden, and it's, you know, as all those classics are, they're so fat and everything, but I've really been getting into this, this novel, and I really enjoy it, and this past uh, week I came across a section, and I'm like, Wow, this is exactly where I'm going this morning uh, and to some degree. And so I really liked it. But in this novel uh, by John Steinbeck, East of Eden, there's a character, and I don't know if how many of you have read it or if you remember it or whatever. There's a character in this novel, and her name is, is Kathy. And Kathy is a beautiful woman, both in physical appearance and also in her mannerisms. She just on the outside exudes a, a, a woman. Uh, has all the qualities that a person would desire in another human being uh, such as that. But hidden deep within Kathy, there is this dark, this sadistic side to her that trickles out in ways that are wrapped and enveloped in sweetness and that can sneak up and come up on a person. But Steinbeck, he introduces uh, this character, the reader, this character, Kathy, to the reader uh, with, this, with this one line that I kind of really liked. And it said this, um, I believe there are monsters born in the world to human parents. I believe there are monsters born to this world to human parents. And it's like, wow, that's how he introduces this character. And then as he gets into it, you see where he's coming from in that. But to make a long novel short, Kathy meets Adam Trask, and Adam Trask is one who, he is a distraught fella, uh, kind of wandering along through life, and their paths cross at an inopportune time, if you will, and they, they marry uh, Kathy out of necessity, Adam just out of blind love, 
And this is not at all a marriage that is made in heaven. Not a match that is made in heaven, if you will. And uh, soon, uh, Kathy's dark, hidden side starts coming out. And as it comes out within her, she gets to a point where Adam buys this farm and stuff like that, and he wants to live on this farm. And, and Kathy does not want to, and she ends up shooting him in the shoulder. And she leaves him and gives her life over to a life of prostitution in the town. And Adam has no idea whatever happened to him. Very sad story, right? And this happened after the birth, soon after the birth of their twin sons. But Adam, not to recite the whole book for you, but Adam, not to give too much of the backstory, but, but, but Adam has a cook, a Chinese cook named Lee. And he's got a neighboring farmer named Samuel Hamilton. And these three, often expressly in the context of, of, of Kathy leaving Adam, these three often get together under this oak tree in the valley there in California, and they study theology, and they get into some of this nerdy stuff and try to philosophize life. From a, from, a, from a person with a Chinese heritage and their religions to Samuel Ham- Hamilton as somebody who is kind of all religious of some sort to Adam Trisk, who is certainly maybe even atheistic, I don't know. But they gather like, and they especially fixate upon Genesis chapter 4. Now, Genesis chapter 4 is a story about Cain and Abel, right? Cain and Abel, the story about how Cain killed his brother, and how do you make sense and meaning of something like this and monsters that are in the world like that? And and they especially, especially Lee, he gets very fascinated with verse 7. And verse 7 of Genesis 4 says this, If you do well, will your face not be cheerful? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door and its desire is for you. This is the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. You must master it. And so Lee has a difficulty with this because the King James Version says, thou shalt master it. Thou shalt master it. In the AS. The American Standard, the original American Standard of this era when this novel was written, those were the two most predominant translations. And and the A.S. says, do thou master it. And Lee says, there is a problem in the translation of this text. Two people seem to be translating a text, both coming out to two different meanings. He says in the King James Version that the thou shalt, it makes the promise that men will surely triumph over sin. That is going to come a point in time that, yes, maybe life isn't the best right now and you're struggling with sin, but ultimately, because of no fault of your own, because of no doing of your own, you will, because you shall master it. It, it, It's going to happen. It is predestined for that to happen. And then he sees the other side in the AS that says, thou shalt master it. And he says, wait a minute, that gives us the sense that, that I must take responsibility of my sins in my life and the things that I come in. How am I going to, how I handle, and the harder I work at those things is going to determine the outcome of my life. And he sees these two things as, as, a counter, as, as, as they contradict each other. And so Lee takes two years off to study Hebrew. And he does it with some other uh, uh, men in town. He takes two years off. He gets some Hebrew Uh, rabbis that come around him also to help him learn the original language because he says, surely, surely the author had a purpose and a meaning that he meant. And I might pause right here and say this is the importance of authorial intent. 
even when we study our own Bibles. Sometimes we read into it. It's called eisegesis. We read our thoughts into the text instead of doing exegesis, reading out of the text. What did the authors intend? And so the, we can't read our Bibles by reading into it. We must know the author's intent. And so Lee says, I need to figure out what the author's intent was for this. And Lee comes to the conclusion that the translation is thou mayest. It is not thou shalt or do thou, but it is thou mayest. And this is a great revelation for him. And he uh, explains this to Samuel Hamilton. And he says this, and I quote, Now there are many millions in their sects and in their churches who feel this order. Do thou, and they throw their weight into obedience, that legalism, right? They throw their weight into obedience. And there are millions more who feel predestination in thou shalt. Nothing they may do can interfere what will be. They have no part in the outcome of it. But, Lee says, thou mayest. Why? That can make a man great. That gives him statue with the gods, for in his weakness and his filth and his murder of his brother, he, Cain, has still the great choice. He can choose his course and fight it through and win. He goes on and he uh, exegetes that a little bit further. But I like that, right? I mean, because that's it, isn't it? I mean, there are both of these that come together in this type of thing. And that we are faced with a choice, and, and Cain was faced with a choice. And I might, might, might remind you um, that we don't necessarily know what happened to Cain. The Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible tells us that he went out from the presence of the Lord, and so many theologians are going to say, well, therefore, going out of the presence of the, of, of the Lord, it, it means that he has, he's out of the presence of the Lord. Somebody who's out of the presence of the Lord is no longer saved or cannot be saved or is unreachable or is untouchable and all those things. But the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us that. It just says that he went out from the presence of the Lord into the land of God, I think it is, and uh, east of Eden. Hence, maybe the title. I don't know yet. I haven't finished the book. But he went out east of Eden. And so that is interesting that God saved Cain. He marked him so that people would not kill him. But yet Cain's life was a disaster. Cain's life was a disaster. We don't know where Cain is currently spending eternity. But this is what I want to talk about as we think about this topic of sanctification. How Cain chooses to master sin, thou mayest. How he chooses to handle that will indeed affect a portion of the course of his life nonetheless. Cain's life is, and we can certainly all agree, was a disaster. And then we can also see that possibly we can read into that text that by God marking him and saving him, that maybe his ultimate destination was indeed heaven. And God did save his soul, although his life was a disaster. I was reminded of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, where it says, I call heaven and earth, or heaven and death, to witness against you today, I'm sorry, heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have placed before you life and death. So choose life in order that you may live. That's taken out of the Old Testament context, obviously, and so I'm not 100% sure if that's talking about the actual phys physical life or the spiritual life. I'm certainly reading that as that spiritual life. The spiritual life 
We cannot save ourselves there. But how we live upon this earth can certainly be based upon the decisions and the choices that each and every one of us makes. And so, as we start this brand new section in the letter to the Romans, I want to just give a, a briefly go, go back where we have been to get us to where we are now going. And so, in Romans chapter 1, verse, verse 1, all the way through verse 17, it gave us a general overview of the whole letter to the Romans. And there's two verses there that I think will help um, remind us and two of the most important verses uh, there in that first introduction, introductory setting. And in 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. And then it transitions over to the topic of condemnation. And Paul spent way too long in making sure that I totally understood and that we totally understand that we are indeed condemned people from birth. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through Romans chapter 3, verse 20, his topic, Paul's topic, was condemnation. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11 gives us a synopsis, an overview of that section, uh, that topic of condemnation, where Paul said this, that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And Paul paints such a bleak picture of humanity, does he not? But then he turns the corner into the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through the end of Romans chapter 5, Paul, what we just finished, Paul's topic of discussion is justification by faith alone. If you look at verse uh, 23 of that same third chapter, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, the John 16, 316 of Romans, if you will, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And this was what Paul was pounding and pounding upon him on this for two and a half chapters, this, this justification by faith alone. Tomorrow is October 31st. I might remind you, uh, the 550. Fourth anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses onto the Wittenberg door there in, in, in Worms, Germany, and it completely uh, redirected the course of the Christian uh, um, uh, course of the Christian church, if, if you will. But this idea of justification by faith alone. So Paul introduces the letter of the Romans. Paul starts out with the bad news of condemnation. Paul transitions from the bad news to the good news of justification by faith alone. And now he's going to get practical. Now he's going to get into our everyday life. And he's going to talk about the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification. In Romans chapter 7, verse 14, just to introduce uh, the sanctification here a little bit. In Romans chapter 7, verse 14, Paul writes there to the church at Rome. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual. But I am fleshly. Just to listen to how Paul wrestles with his own life. 
but I am fleshly, sold into the bondage of sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, for I am not practicing what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. However, if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law that the law is good. But now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. Now I find then that the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully agree with the law, in the law of God in the inner person. But I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. The law which is in my body's parts, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Do you, do you, can you just feel that rustling? Can you relate? Can you relate at all with what Paul is saying here? And Paul comes to church on a Sunday morning. He listens to all the best preachers on YouTube and podcasts, and, and he reads all the best books. He knows the do's and the don'ts and thou shalt and thou shalt nots and all those. You get all Elizabethan language on, on people such as that, and you get into that, and yet you don't do that very thing that you are supposed to do. What do you do with that? How do you wrestle with those things can be so frustrating, and we see it right here from Paul, from somebody who laid it out there for us that he too wrestles with the flesh. He too has a monster within that he is trying to corral. I think most of us live there more than we care to acknowledge. But I find that there can be some confusion with the relationship between justification and sanctification. And so I want to take some time here right at the beginning of this new section of Romans. And I just want to give a brief overview of the doctrine of sanctification and hopefully do it in a way that um, it doesn't bore you too badly, but also that sets the stage for what is to come and that plays so much into each and every one of our, our lives. And so first, we're going to see the contrast between the two. We're going to see the contrast between justification and sanctification. Then we're going to look at the connection between justification and sanctification. And then we're going, to, we're going to bring some clarification to sanctification. And then if time allows, we are going to look at verse 1, and we're going to see the anticipated objection that Paul sees in verse 1. And then we're going to roll over into verse 2 and see the emphatic rejection of the anticipated objection. Does that make sense? I think it will, and I hope that it will by the time we're, we're through this thing. And so we're going to start out with the contrast between justification and sanctification. What is the difference between these two? Justification um, justification is, is, is just to use a big fancy word. The justification is, is, is monergistic. Moner meaning singular, right? 
meaning that it's one person that's involved with justification, that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, alone, that has nothing to do on our part, but that is a totally and a complete work of God alone. That's monergistic. It is, is a one person that is involved. Justification is also a one-time event. It doesn't happen over and over and over again. Justification is something that we could say takes place in the courtroom of heaven at the divine council of God is where justification takes place. And we know that justification delivers us from sin. Finds, doesn't deliver us from sin, I'm sorry, but delivers us from the guilt of sin. Just, justification declares us righteous before God. It's the imparted, uh, the imputed righteousness of Christ placed upon us and finds us, this courtroom heaven finds us not guilty. Sanctification, on the other hand, is synergistic. Synergistic, S-Y-N, meaning with. And so it, there's partners with this. And so there's partners within this. It's the proper functioning. How do we live out this righteousness? How do, or this justification? How is that flushed out and lived out in our life? When we are being sanctified, that means it's hagias, so that also means saint or holy, the holy ones. And so when we are being sanctified, what we are doing is doing what we were designed to do, doing what we are supposed to do. This mic here that keeps flopping on my ear, hopefully it's not distracting for you as it is for me, it is doing, though, is being sanctified by broadcasting my voice. You see, that's what sanctification is. When we do what, when, when Scotty takes the mower and he mows the grass, that mower is being sanctified in essence in a very uh, a rough and crude way. We could say that it is doing what it was created to do. So justification is a, a, done by one person. It is a work of God. It's a one-time event. Sanctification is something that is ongoing. It's an ongoing event. And it is held out, if you will. It is carried out in the courtroom, not in heaven, but on earth. How do we live our life here on earth? It delivers us not from the guilt of sin, not sin itself, but it delivers us from the pollution of sin, meaning the sin that Paul himself was wrestling with. That sin doesn't corrupt, doesn't pollute the person. Why? Because we have been justified. So you see the contrast between justification and sanctification. I hope so. Uh, but I, I want to move on because I could spend uh, the rest of my time right there. Um, but I want to move on to the connection between the justification and sanctification. So what is this connection? What is the relationship? How do these two things connect? All who are justified are immediately sanctified. They're not two separate events. They're not something that is done. One's done now. One done, one's done later. Justification happens, and we are immediately sanctified. We are immediately set apart. We are immediately saints. We are, as soon as we are justified, as soon as a person surrenders their heart and life to Jesus Christ, they become a saint. No need to jump through hoops to get to be such a person. You are that. God does not justify that sometime in the future a person starts living faithful. And I think this is a danger that is often taught possibly within, well, I mean, I, I don't think it's done intentionally. 
But, uh, you know, we say, well, a person has made a commitment for, for Christ, and, and then 10 years later, 15 years later, they completely, like, fell off the wagon or something. You know, what happened to them? And all of a sudden, they start living and, and say, oh, okay, now they're, no, it's not, it's not what it is at all. You know, they're not, they're not like back on the wagon. Sanctification, justification happens simultaneously. And yet how sanctification is lived out in a person's life. You are set apart for God, but then how you live that, um, how you live your life is being sanctified, right? Doing what God has set you apart. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. You know, we're quite familiar with this text also, right? It's the narrow and the wide gate. And let's see if we can find some implication in this. But it says that Jesus said there that enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted or, broad, or the, the constricted that leads to life. And there are few that find it. You see, we don't find our way into this narrow gate and end up being on a broad path. They're the same. It's a narrow gate, narrow path, broad gate, broad path, right? The two work together such as that. You are justified. You are saved. You are justified. You are set apart. You are sanctified. You're, you're set apart for God. But then how you enter, how you walk that narrow path is sanctification. Nobody enters the narrow gate and then lives on the broad path of following the culture of this world. No, if that's where they are, if that's where you are, you have not entered the narrow gate. You've entered the wide gate. Do not mistake the wide and the narrow here. Well, let's go move on here to the clarification of sanctification. And um, this may bring a little more clarity, I'm hoping, um, if I have you thoroughly confused. But I don't think so. You're all smart. You know this already. Uh, so the clarification of sanctification is past, present, future. We could simply say it as past, present, or future. Past would be what is called, theologians would call that, positional sanctification. What's positional sanctification? Well, it's right in there in the Word, right? It's your position in sanctification. So it's a disconnect from our past life. Being sanctified in the past, positional sanctification means that we are disconnected from our past life of sin. We are washed, right? Often the biblical language uses that. We are washed. Uh, if you look at Romans chapter 6, verse 2, the verse that we had read here today, we will see this sense of the positional or the past tense of um, sanctification. In verse 2, it says there that how shall we who died? See, how shall we who died? That's Past tense. If you come on over here then to verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was what? Was crucified. Again, past tense. Was crucified. Look at verse 7 just for one more. For the one who has died is freed from sin. Again, it's a sanctifying act that has happened. is set apart in past tense form. I'm going to go uh, to, to one other verse yet here uh, to make sure we get this and then hopefully... We'll get somewhere. Um, but in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse uh, 2, Paul writing to the church at Corinth, says, to the church of God, which is in Corinth. Now listen, here you're going to hear the past tense. To those who have been sanctified, to those who have been set apart in Christ Jesus, saints, hagia, saints, by calling with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
in order. So Paul is saying that you have been sanctified, past tense, and he calls them now saints, holy people, small h, set apart for God. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And just, just, just hear the past tense in, in, this, in this verse. Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the spirit of God our Father. Do you hear that? When Paul is talking to the church and saying, stay away from these sins, such were some, is a past tense form of sanctification. This is an event, this is something that happened at the time where you were saved, at the time of your justification, at the time of you being declared righteous before God. Let's move on to uh, present tense, which be, would be progressive sanctification. It's an ongoing process. And I think maybe this is where we can get bogged down just a little bit sometime in our life, in our Christian life. It is our ongoing Christian walk. It's our daily walk. And that's why I wanted to read what I did to you, how Paul himself is wrestling with his daily life, wrestling with this progressive sanctification, with the present sanctification. How do I, why do I keep doing the things that I know I don't want to do, that I know are not right? And he wrestles with that. That is that progressive sanctification. This is the battle that we are in right now. This is the battle that we are fighting. If you go to Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 12 and 13, it says that Paul is writing there and says that at the end of this uh, whole section on sanctification, he says, so then, brothers and sisters, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. No, that's not where we're under obligation. Verse 13, for if you are living in accord with the flesh. Now, listen, can we make it more clear than this? For if you are living in accord with the flesh, you are going to die. <laughs> could you could you could you could you speak a little clearer, Paul? If you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. He's not talking about physical. He's talking about spiritual. That's going to be a future tense of the word. You are going to die, but if by the Spirit. Now listen, if by the Spirit you are putting to death. You see that ongoing language that we have there, that present and continuing work that we have to do. By the Spirit you are putting to death what? The deeds of the body. You will live. You will live. Paul lays it out so clearly there how sanctification works in the life of the believer. Romans 12, 2, we could go there also for right, for uh, where it tells us that uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is an ongoing work that the believer must do in our life. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but it is work. It is work. We cannot be lazy Christians. We need lazy people. We have work to do. The Bible often refers to life as a race, life as a journey, and that we are instructed to run our race with endurance. There's nothing, I love endurance, but there's nothing easy about endurance sports, a sprint, Put it all on the line for 30 seconds, a minute or two or three, I don't know. But an endurance for mile after mile after hour after hour, day after day, battle after battle, that takes endurance. That is being sanctified as you continue through your Christian journey. Then lastly, uh, when it comes to sanctification, 
is the perfected. That's the, that, that's the future. The perfected sanctification, which is certainly something that you always hear me talk about, is glorification, right? That's the future state when we are perfected. Look at Romans chapter 8, 29, 30, where Paul tells us this. In fact, he uses the term there, glorification, which is certainly better than sanctification. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, he says, For those whom he, whom God foreknew, God also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Why? So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and and sisters. Verse 30, And those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is the future sanctification, that glorification that we see here. That is the perfected state. And so, hopefully something there made sense because that is where Paul is headed for the next three chapters. And we'll dabble in and out of that as we go along, but hopefully we don't have to go through all that again. But I do think that that is something that we must put before us, you know, as we go through our own Christian life. Because there's this wrestling, right? We've seen it in the story of East and Eden, East of Eden. We see it in, in our life. We see Paul wrestling with this. And sometimes you may wonder this. How can I even be saved if I keep messing up like this? And I'm certainly not encouraging you because that is going, that is going to, to be the anticipated objection. But we don't keep on sinning, but we continue to battle. We continue to battle through our Christian life. That's the sanctification that is being spoken of here. But there's a danger that comes with that, I do know. And Paul anticipates that. That's how he starts out this whole topic of sanctification in verse 6. What shall we say then? Paul asks so many questions. He must have learned from me. But Paul asks so many questions. Everything is always a question and answer, question and answer, question. And he does it right here also. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And what is he doing? Well, he's, he, he's pulling forward the last two verses of chapter 5 that we've seen a couple of weeks ago. The law came in. Why? So that the offense would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Why? So that as sin reigned in death, so also grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus. So Paul says that, and then he says, now I know what you're thinking. (laughs) Well, then I might as well keep right on sinning so that God is even more glorified. And Paul is going to say, and Paul is going to have the phatic rejection of that in verse 2. But absolutely not. But this is also the argument that I often hear against the teaching of perseverance of the saints. I try to be careful of some of the language I use, but the Bible teaches what the Bible teaches. But those who, those who want to push back against that, they say, well, if that's what we teach, and that gives the person the right to live however they want to live their life. And it's like, no, we don't correct one wrong with another wrong, but we actually teach what the Scripture says, and we teach against the lifestyle that somebody else may be living. But we wrestle with this very same thing today, and that's exactly what Paul is wrestling with here today. Sometimes we call it or we hear these words, or maybe you don't hear these words, but antinomianism 
It's just against what? Against law, against nomos. Let's be against the law. And we say, well, since we are saved and since we are justified and we are sanctified, therefore, the law doesn't apply to us. That would be incorrect. And so there's that camp also that is out there that wants to do exactly what Paul is saying here. And, 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 and uh, theologians, or we, we would call that uh, 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 as those who want to disagree with the law, those who want to say that the law no longer counts for anything. Uh, and that is incorrect. That's also what Paul is battling here. In fact, if you want to flip back a couple pages in Romans chapter 3, in Romans chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, we can see that Paul was battling this anti-Ammonian uh, 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 mindset of, of, of the people right here in this verse, in verse um, Romans 3, verse 7, where Paul says this, but if through my lie, so Paul is talking about the gospel that he is preaching, so you're saying that's a lie, but if, if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still also being judged as a sinner? Verse 8, and why not say, and he inserts this little footnote right here. Your Bible may have it as a parenthesis right here. Just as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim we are saying, let's do evil that good may come from it. Their condemnation is deserved. Do you see that? I mean, Paul is exactly battling what we often battle also today with the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Well, if we say that once saved, I was, if we say you cannot lose your salvation, once you're saved, it is God finishes what he started. Well, that way it gives a person the right to live however they want to live. And if that's the person's mindset, then I'm telling you, they will wake up in hell. They were not saved people. We cannot, we cannot have a wrong doctrine or make up our own doctrine to try to refute something else that we see somebody else's is misusing a biblical doctrine. Paul is battling this right here in Romans. He's battling this. In fact, in Jude chapter, uh, one chapter in Jude, Jude verse 4, in Jude verse 4, Paul, uh, Jude, Paul, uh, brother Jesus says this, <clears throat> might be brother Jesus here, he says this, for certain people, he says, have crept in unnoticed. They just kind of showed up in our midst, and now they're true colors. Now what's within them is starting to come out. Those who long ago beforehand were marked out for condemnation, something that God had determined ages ago, they've been marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into indecent behavior, who say that, hey, because we live under the grace of God, we can do whatever we want to do. We see Jude here wrestling with it in the church. And they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. This is something that we have, that we battle, that we battle today and that we have battled from long ago. And Paul anticipates this objection to what he has been teaching as he transitions from you are declared right before God. But that doesn't mean that you are perfect. And that doesn't mean because you have been saved by nothing of your own part, nothing of your own doing, and because God has chosen to save you, that glorifies God, does not give you the right to live however you want by trying to glorify him even more. And Paul gets to verse 2 in the emphatic rejection of verse 2. In Paul's letters, uh, in this Paul's letter right here, uh, 14 times in all of Paul's letters, he often will say that far from it, or your translation is going to say, may it never be. He asks this ridiculous question, and then he answers with, 
far from it, or may it never be. In chapter 6, 20 times or so, I just did a quick count so it may not be quite accurate, but 20 times Paul uses the word death, die, or dying, uh, dead, that type of thing. 20 times in, in, in chapter 6, 10 times some form of the word life. And so that's exactly what Paul is talking about. It's a matter of life and death. It's a choice of life and death that he is being, that he's being, that he's talking about right here. In, 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 in uh, 6, in chapter 6, verse 7, Paul says, the one who has died. Again, we see this past tense form, right? The one who has died is freed from sin. Chapter 6, verse 11, consider yourself to be dead to sin. Chapter 7, verse 4, you also were put to death. Verse, seven, verse 6 of chapter 7, having died to that which you were bound. You see, Paul is using this language of life and death all through uh, this letter. And is there anything half dead? Is there any such thing as half dead? Um, I did not receive permission to use this as an apple. So, say it at my own peril, possibly. But the other night, my wife and I were having a discussion. Did you see those air quotes? We were having a discussion about our plant situation. Um, and some of them, I claim, are half dead. <laughs> Why do we continue to have half dead plants in the house? Let's chuck them. I love that word. Let's chuck them. And she says, no, but I enjoy bringing them back to life and stuff. No, there's no such thing as half dead, right? The plant has some life in it. I get that. That was my point, right? So we say things are half dead, but in reality, we know there's nothing, there's no such thing as half dead. Either it's living or it's not living. How much life is within it is, 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 is something we can have a conversation about. But if it's dead, it is dead. It is gone and it is over. And that is what Paul is saying all the time, that we are dead in our sin. Sin does not pollute us anymore. Sin does not rule our life, though we do sin. But sin does not rule our life. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself brought our sins, or you translate it say, bore our sins. You, for he himself brought, I love the way the NASB 2020 translates that. You have, he has brought our sins up on the cross with him. Jesus has. In his body up on the cross, so that why? So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. Obviously, he's not talking about a physical healing. He's talking about a spiritual healing. Not physical, spiritual healing that he's talking about in the context of the text. You can see that. That we are healed from the bondage of sin because Jesus has taken them up upon the cross and they have been nailed there. How then? How then can we fall back into a life of sin? Well, I need to wrap this up. So I have a quote here. I think I might have it in your outline in the bulletin there um, from Origen, church father from many moons ago. And I just love how he said this. Um, so here's my point of application there to, for you to ponder, and that is to obey the cravings of sin is to be alive to sin but not to obey the cravings of sin or to succumb to its will, 
This is to die to or die in. I might correct that. To die in, he says, to sin, right? Condemnation, we are all condemned. Justification, God has or will indeed justify. And that leads us then into a life of sanctification. To one degree or another, we are all monsters, to use Steinbeck's terminology, in one form or another, monsters born to human parents. But to those who God has justified, he has also sanctified. And as I said many, few sermons ago anyways, our focus plus desire equals something. Those of us who are justified, that are saved, it is a matter of how are we going to live our life? As one of my preacher friends likes to say, we believe that following Jesus makes you a better person and makes you better at life. I might borrow that. I love that. That is sanctification, is it not? We believe that following Jesus makes you a better person and makes you better at life. That is not a salvific saying, but that is a sanctification saying, is it not? Focus plus desire equals something. How we go about choosing the things that we do in our life may not affect our eternal outcome, but it can certainly have an effect on how we run this race, how we run our life in the fulfillment that we receive right here, being faithful to what God has called and asked us to do. Sin is always lurking at the door. Sin is always lurking at our door somewhere. Will you give in? Or in the words of Lee, will you choose to fight it and win? That's your choice. That's your decision. Your eternal destination has been determined and decided by God when you've surrendered your heart and life to him. But how you live this life right now is determined by how you battle and fight that sin that is lurking at each and every one of our doors. I pray, it would be my prayer, that you will continue to battle and that you will do battle and that you will continue to seek God for your directional leadership as you do this life. Father, I pray that you will help us to be faithful. Father, we are all here currently breathing, living. Because you're not done with us. You've created us on purpose and for purpose. And so, Lord, I pray that we can get our minds wrapped around this idea that because we falter and fall and struggle through life does not mean that you don't love us, does not mean that we are not saved. But it just means that we have not yet reached that future sanctification, that state of glorification where we are perfect with you. So, Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to battle the sins that we find ourselves with, knowing that they don't rule over us. They're just a nuisance to us. Give us the battle. Give us the courage to continue the battle and not to give in, not to cave to those temptations and struggles that come into each and every one of our life. I thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, for being faithful where I could not. And by imputing your faithfulness upon me, Father, that I can have eternal life. So I pray, Lord, for your continued guidance, leading, and direction. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.